are listening to the Traditional Outdoors Podcast. This episode of the Traditional Outdoors Podcast is brought to you by Always in Season Bulk Ammo. Always in Season Bulk Ammo helps hunters and target shooters save money on ammunition and reloading supplies. They carry all popular brands including premium shotgun ammo like Game Boar, Kent, and Cleaver. Always in Season Bulk Ammo provides excellent customer service with great value, great products, and excellent ship times. If you need ammo or reloading supplies, give them a shout. You can contact them on the web at AISBulkAmmo.com or through email at AISBulkAmmo at gmail.com. Now on to the show. Welcome to the Traditional Outdoors Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Steve Angel, and rejoining me this week is my good friend and co-host, Mr. Nick View. And Nick, you're fresh back from the traditional Bow Hunters Expo in Kalamazoo. How was the show? Oh, it was really, really good. You know, I thought Friday was a little slow, but there was uh, some school closings, and I think everybody kind of got freaked out with the incoming weather and uh, didn't really show up Friday. Some people told me it was a, it was a record turnout there on Friday, but it didn't really seem like it. Um, Saturday was like triple the numbers and was awesome. Um, I don't know how many. I'd have to talk to Bob uh, Brum and find out how many were actually there, but as per usual, he put on a great event. Tons of bow hunters there, great seminars. Um, you know, Barry Wenzel, Aaron Snyder, a bunch of other people. Um, I didn't get to go to any of the seminars. I was too busy. But um, uh, as you know, I um, I brought my book there. Um, I ordered uh, 50 copies to bring there and, and sell it. Um, it was my kind of my first show. And I was going to get my own booth, but it was uh, it just didn't work out. The other guy I was going to go on there with, Billy Hoffman, he, he couldn't make it. Um, so Dave and Tracy from St. Joe... They, uh, they kind of let me sell books out of their booth if I helped them out. And as a St. Joe shooter, I kind of acted as like a field staff kind of guy and just helped them out a little bit. And they had a great weekend, and I sold all but eight eight books um, from Friday and Saturday. I didn't even go back Sunday. And uh, it was just a real good event. Bob did a great job. Um, my one regret is that I didn't get to spend like any time at the Michigan Longbow Association booth, but John and crew had it well under control and signed up like 23 new members so that was that's a real good weekend yep so it was good man i hope you can make it one of these years i I, i've already told i mean i'm i'm i really hate i couldn't this year i just i could not do both uh i had already made a commitment that i was going to return to the the michigan longbow association banquet but i've already told bob next year i'm I'm gonna i'm gonna start swapping out and do one every other year so next year i'm doing the expo one way or the other it's 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 gonna happen i really hate i couldn't i just couldn't make it this year well you know it was a trip is uh you know i was standing there and i had to tell the story about my book you know about a million times and I had uh, people would turn around when they heard my voice and I had two or three people say, man, Nick, love the podcast and just, you know, give us a ton of props and, you know, say, man, we're surprised you guys didn't set up and have a booth here. That would have been really cool. You know, and uh, a couple of guys went and made it a point that they wanted to meet me and, and tell us that how much they love the show. And um, I thought that was really, really cool. You know, so we're we're kind of more ingrained into the population than we thought we were, you know? Well, and that's good. And we, and I do plan on, if I go next year, you know, we'll, we'll definitely have a table there. Um, I've had a few people reach out to me about, you know, asking me about, you know, hats or shirts or stickers. And, uh, you know, I just haven't done any of that yet, but 
I'm getting enough requests. I think we're going to, I'm going to start looking into it. I know I, I sent you some pictures on Facebook the mm-hmm. other day and I, I think it's going to, something we're going to do. I think we're, you know, the stickers I'm thinking about doing those is just a giveaway item for, you know, maybe pick a random person each week that's left us a review or something like that. And speaking of that, um, just to kind of get the get the idea out there and, and wet everybody's whistle for this, uh, I am teaming up with Scott Spray. Uh, he is going to build a custom uh, fly rod and give it away as part of a, a drawing on the show. So full details about that is coming soon. But it will be a custom fly rod from uh, Scott Spray, and he's also going to throw in one of the custom uh, license plates, which if you haven't seen these things, they are amazing. So um, everybody stay tuned for that. If you haven't left a rating or review, get out there and do so because we will be drawing uh, the winner from the pool of people that have left uh, reviews for uh, the podcast. So get out there and leave a review. (laughs) With that, Nick, I think we need to kind of jump forward and go ahead and get into our guest. What do you say? Oh, I think so. He's been waiting patiently on the other end. So joining us tonight is Mr. Will Jenkins. Will owns the website, The Will to Hunt. That's www.thewilltohunt.com. And we've, the the three of us, and I don't know if you and Nick have ever met face-to-face, Will. I know you and I haven't, but we've talked on the phone, and we've, all three of us have kind of been communicating through social media for quite a few years. So it seems like I know you pretty good, even though I've never met you face-to-face. So how's it going, buddy? It's it's uh it's going well and yeah I mean I don't think Nick and I have ever uh, have ever met face to face yet but we've talked for going on eight years now uh, started my website back in March of 2011 and we met through social media all three of us and as we were kind of talking about earlier is a whole group of us kind of found each other through Twitter um, way back then and even though we've kind of dropped off here and there we've all still kept in kept in touch and and all that so so yeah. Mm-hmm. Twitter was legit back then too. Twitter was the sportsman's hangout. Yeah. Be- before yeah. like the Facebook boom where the community started popping up. Right. Like, I think that's really what kind of killed it. But yeah, there was like, you know, it started off with one or two, then three, four, five, seven. We had a group of like eight, nine people talking almost every night. And then I mm-hmm. remember Hunt Chat would go on. Oh yeah, that's right. Oh I've yeah, forgotten about that. Yeah, hunt hunt chat would happen like I it was at eight o'clock on certain nights, and everybody chimed into that. Yeah, um, yeah. We were talking about a few before before we started recording. Uh, so you started the Will to Hunt in two thousand eleven. Nick, you started Life in Longbows around that time. Mm-hmm. I started Simply Traditional in two thousand twelve, and I think you know just that creative mix is kind of how we all met but there was uh, uh wired to hunt you mentioned that one earlier when we were talking i remember solo hunter was another one that was just getting off the ground about that time so i mean that was a that was a, a pretty good mix of people yeah yep. it was yeah really cool and actually will was one of my it was really kind of pushed me to get my, my get my stuff together um because <laughs> i had i had like a i was on like blogger I yeah. think when I started, <laughs> it was God. terrible. And then, and then, like, I will had the like he had like the logo, and he had like all the stuff in the con, and you know the weekly content or whatever. And uh, I was like, that's what I want to do. And I picked his brain, and then got you know got into WordPress and got you know a logo made and and 
ask somebody from work to do that for me. And, and that's, and you know, I kind of went from there and then Steve picked my brain about starting his mm-hmm. and <laughs> it kind of went from there. And I remember one of the first things that exchanges we had, Will, was you like, you like sent me your logo and you were like, what do you think of this? And I was like, I think it looks like the, what was the one logo I told you that it looked like you stole it from? <laughs> oh, uh, Nightingale. <laughs> night and hail and he goes shut up that doesn't look like night and hail it's different <laughs> and i was like are you sure about that <laughs> well it was like um i had they had just switched at the time again this was the logo stuff was probably six seven years ago so it wasn't like right when i very first started probably but um but yeah they had just changed to have a similar orange color i used to have that orange logo with the white antler mm-hmm. and they had just changed some of their calls to have that orange tone to it, to their logos. And then they had an antler logo at the same time. And of course it was like happenstance. I didn't even know they'd done that until you said it. And I was like, ah, crap. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't change it. I just went with it. (laughs) Yeah, I know. You were like, I was changing it now. And I'm like, there you go. You just wait for him to subpoena you. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But Will, can you tell us a little bit about the will to hunt and how that got started and why you did it? So I've always uh, always wanted to be a writer. You know, it sounds like something so cool. Like you can tell such engaging stories that people want to pay you to read them kind of thing. And, um, you know, I grew up reading various magazines, mostly nature and outdoors focused. And I just thought that was so cool to make a living off of spending time outdoors and telling people about it or becoming an expert on some aspect of that. So um, in 2011, I back then I had only one small kid, um, and was just working a day job in healthcare, spending all day in spreadsheets. Um, and to be, uh, pretty honest, had a lot of terrible things happen in my life in that time period and needed an escape that wasn't taking my spreadsheets home. So, um, I'd actually, uh, I'd actually submitted a couple of blog posts to, um, Mark Kenyon at Wired to Hunt back then when he was first starting Um, he posted a couple that I just kind of said, Hey, if you want them, they're yours. Um, but I kept writing more and more and more and it it didn't fit his schedule and he didn't owe me anything. He didn't need to post my stuff. So I was like, you know what? I'll just start my own thing. And I did like you, Nick, I started on Blogspot, you know, like whatever.blogger.com or whatever. And shortly after starting, I was like, you know, my goal would be, was to have, uh, a hundred readers at the end of the first month. And that was just like my internal goal. I'd started a Twitter page and I didn't know what I was doing at all. But um, I started writing. And for the first month, I think I wrote two, had two stories a week posted. And the first month in, I had well over a thousand viewers. And I was like, oh, wow, that's 10 times what I thought. Maybe I should just keep doing this. So for the first, like probably three and a half years, I posted at least two, if not three pieces of content a week. Um yeah, for about two and a half, three years straight. So, um, obviously a lot of work for not a lot of gain other than people getting excited to read my stuff and me getting excited to see that people were actually reading it. Um, and it just kind of, I just kept going from there and ended up, uh, starting a pretty solid freelance career, helping, um, different content sites and brands help build their brand, help promote them, help strategize how to build their brand through social media and, uh, different stuff like that. So yeah, you did some. Uh, I think you were involved with outdoor blogging, blogging network at the time. Yeah, OBN. we. Yeah, yep. Yeah, we. I'd helped a little bit there. Um, actually, kind of 
helped slash intern at Professional Outdoor Media Association, helped them get their social media up and running, um, and got in with a handful of folks that just did uh, just little bits of stuff here and there. Um, it's how I met Donnie Vincent. I ended up quitting my job for a while and working for him for a year. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I got a lot of cool opportunities out of it and met a lot of really good people that I'm still, I, like you guys, I mean, met you guys and, you know, it's not one of those things where we can, I don't necessarily talk to you every day, but it can be six months and then we pick right back up where we left off and it's all good, you know, so it's a lot of friendships like that where, um, you know, a lot of good people that you can trust and I've met a, a lot of really good friends that way. Mm-hmm. And actually, I was just thinking about this and Steve, I, you might have been on one of these, but... Will, you were one of the first people that actually went live yeah. before going live. Like, yeah, was live a thing. didn't exist. Like, Instagram and Facebook hadn't done any live events yet. Um, I found, so what I wanted to do, and this was before podcasts even did much, I, like Twitter chats and live chats like that were, were doing okay, and live Q&As on Facebook were doing okay. And I was like, you know, it'd be way better to see the people and have people interacting. So what I did is I don't even remember the name of the website, but it was like a, it was kind of like a go-to meeting or a WebEx mm-hmm. um, website. So you'd have the two presenters have their webcams on. It would be me and my guests, and then everybody else with the link could join the chat um, and ask questions. And I, I'd start with usually you know ten to fifteen minutes of my own questions, and we'd open it up to the audience, and I'd have. I, you'd call him a producer, but it was anybody I could rope in last minute to monitor the chat and feed me the appropriate <laughs> questions to ask. Um, I mean, I had a lot of, we had a lot of really cool guests too. Um, Jason Hairston from Kuyu was one of the first and Donnie Vincent, um, the guys from solo hunter, uh, Bill, uh, Crawley from Badlands, the guy that started Badlands Pax oh, was yeah. on. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are still floating out on Vimeo somewhere, but we'd have anywhere from like 60 to 80 people log in live. And it was, it was a lot of fun. It was like, like you said, Nick, it was before anybody was really doing live stuff. And then, uh, it was like a month or two after I started, that's when uh deer and deer hunting started their deer cast live. And I was like, Hey, <laughs> sounds familiar. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> But yeah, so I mean, obviously it was zero budget. I was just doing it for fun, and a lot of people saw. I, you know, whether they saw what I was doing or not, that's you know, that's when you started seeing some of the live stuff pick up after that, and then the different platforms went to offering live services like Instagram and Facebook, and Vimeo even has a a live interchange now. And but yeah, so so well, I know there's there's a certain uh, type of hunting you've kind of gotten into fairly recently that we really want to focus a lot of the chat mm-hmm. about tonight. But for for those that haven't been out to your your site, you know, understanding how you got started and so forth, you know, what in your words, what can a what can a user who's never been out to your site expect to find when they get there? So it started out as really me just sharing my follies of trying to hunt really um and i think that's what a lot of people liked and what resonated is i'd tell my hunting stories and they kind of echoed their own um i didn't kill a lot hell i haven't killed a deer in probably three or four years now i've moved a lot and stuff and haven't had a ton of time to hunt but that's just been my life really for the last decade is moving and family and stuff so i get out when i can and i bust my butt when i'm out there but it doesn't mean i ever kill anything um and I'd share that lessons learned. I'd share what I did, what I didn't do and what I regretted. And I'd also, um, 
I really enjoy writing gear reviews. I try to be really thorough and honest, and I'd hope uh, if anybody goes out there, you'll see a, probably a few hundred gear reviews on my site at this point. Um, and as of this year, I have two contributors that help write some gear reviews for me too. And you, you'll kind of see the difference between them, just different voice, not that they don't actually test the stuff, but yeah, I mean, a lot of gear reviews, some, not a lot of how to's because I don't really know either. I'm just trying to tell you what I tried and if it worked or not. Um, uh, but yeah, I think that's kind of sums up the main, main bit there. And, and over the last few years, I have started to kind of comment more on, some conservation issues, especially on public lands and have been pretty involved with backcountry hunters and anglers for the last three, four years too. So when necessary, I try to comment on those. I don't try to push it all day, every day, but there's certain things that really need to be seen and heard and acted on. And I try to push those things. Understood. And I'll, I'll be honest, I, I, I go out to the, I've got so many websites. I'll be honest. <laughs> I started a while back that I just, I use an RSS feed Mm-hmm. Uh, program and as new stuff comes in i'll i'll kind of read through it in the feed but uh i did hop out to the website just the other day after nick and i were talking about this um and lo and behold there the, the on the on the home page there's a picture of a guy walking with a recurve so i was all fired yeah. up. but uh but uh yeah it's um the site's changed a little bit from what i remember um mm-hmm. because like i said i just I read through so much stuff that I typically I'm just reading through the text and it's shame on me for a lot of these sites. I miss <laughs> a lot of the, I, li, I miss a lot of the, the content from the photo perspective just because I'm trying to read through so much stuff. But, uh, right. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, it's a, everybody ought to go check it out. It's a real cool site. A lot of whether you're, you know, whether you're a traditional bow hunter, a, a regular bow hunter, gun hunter, it doesn't matter. There's a lot of really good reviews on equipment. I did notice that. I'm, in fact, I've got the uh, the Maven review bookmarked. I want to go back and, and read that one myself. So Nice, but, yeah. But anyway, just wanted to, you know, give the listeners a, a, a bit more context as far as what they could expect to find. And, and what yeah. I've always liked about Will is that, I mean, a lot of people will write a review just because they get it and they and they and they say good things about it. Will was one of the first people that reviewed something that was brutally honest about it, and I really respected that. Not only that, but you always took really good photos too, and yeah, you know, and still do. So, yeah, well, it's that's a big part of it, right? Yeah, and I don't think I've ever written a review where I didn't say something constructive slash bad about it there's no perfect product and i try to be honest about that because that's the biggest thing is everything's got some shortcoming or shortfall from Mm -hmm. somebody's point of view and i'd rather somebody go in knowing that um one of the best well not best reviews but one i've gotten the most thanks about and the most traffic on is i reviewed a really crappy halo rangefinder i don't know this is three years ago no five or six years ago. Anyway, it was a halo rangefinder. I was on my way to the Eastern shore of Maryland to hunt with a buddy. And uh, I needed literally the cheapest rangefinder that actually might work. So I got whatever was the absolute cheapest at the Bass Pro on my way. And I was just honest about what it did good and what it didn't do. And what it did good is, you know, it's a great rangefinder for close quarters bow hunting. Uh, not great for low light performance. So if you're going to be hunting in a, you know, dark forest, at dusk or dawn, it's probably not going to help you at all. And I've had probably, I don't know, 40 or 50 people write me emails saying, thank you for being so honest. I was worried about that rangefinder, but it meets my needs perfectly. And I knew what I was getting into. Thanks. And it's like, Oh, I kind of felt bad writing about all the things that were wrong with it. But at the end, that's what people appreciated and they still bought it. 
you know, I've had dozens of people tell me they've bought it and love it and it actually went in knowing what to expect. So, well, I'm glad you didn't review my wooden arrows, Will, because I remember I made some custom will to hunt wooden arrows for for you one time that you could shoot out oh, your yeah, bare. I still mo- have them. You still have them. You can shoot out your bare Montana longbow, and I'll never forget one of them broke in your hand. When you oh yeah, it. yeah, that's right. <laughs> and I was like, oh, what I do? <laughs> and I and I felt terrible about it. I, and I wrote a blog post about how I didn't construct it the right way and how the grains were were facing inward, and that's why it when you know cut your hand or whatever it did. But I I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, and <laughs> but, I still uh, have the quiver your dad made. Yo, you you bought one of my dad's quivers. I remember that. Yeah, that's man. crazy. And are that's you... where your arrows still are. They're still. <laughs> I, I was, was going to say, I know you haven't been doing a whole lot of bow hunting. Have you been? Have you been uh, shooting that longbow much at all? No, I, I. When I lived in Virginia, so this is going on five years ago, I, I shot it a ton and got pretty proficient with it and, and really enjoyed it. But that's because I had two and a half acres and I could do whatever I wanted. And now I live in a, a little neighborhood in, you know, a suburb in western Wisconsin and. I can't fire things <laughs> in my yard, regardless <laughs> of what the projectile is. Gotcha. That'll, that'll hurt you for sure. And it's not always all it's cracked up to be to shoot in the basement either. Right. Uh, so, uh, Hey, so I know that, so since you haven't been able to do that, I, I noticed that you've been, uh, you picked up a new hobby recently and what, out of the blue, you know, and I felt really bad cause I was mad. I haven't talked to Will in a while. And all of a sudden I started noticing on your, your stories and your feed and stuff that you've got this dog yeah. And you're like upland bird hunting. I'm like, when did you start doing that? I feel terrible. I haven't talked to him lately. But so how did, how did that happen? So uh, I moved out to Minnesota in 2014, at the beginning of 2014. Um, and really, that's been kind of part of the reason I haven't spent a ton of time bow hunting is it's just completely new. I mean, I'm 1,200 miles away in completely different environment, completely different deer, completely different weather. It's been a a pretty drastic learning curve um, and just really lack of access just because I'd never hunted public land before and some of the areas near the Twin Cities are just so you know high traffic and um, with limited time for scouting and hunting it just makes it hard to kind of beat the general public out there and that's not to say there's not plenty of public land I've actually found that I just enjoy a lot of different types of hunting as much or more than bow hunting whitetails um, you know from bow hunting mule deer and you know, Western South Dakota, cause I can actually get there now to, um, I've always wanted to bird hunt and there's actually pheasants here and, and things you can shoot. Whereas in Virginia, there's just none in, unless you're going to game farms and spending a bunch of money and I don't have that. So, um, it actually kind of, I kind of have an awkward love story with how I fell in love with pheasant hunting. It, it's probably what most people would see as a terrible pheasant hunting experience because usually it's like people are like oh i went to a game farmer i went to south dakota and we saw 60 birds in one day and we got our limits by 10 a.m but my first experience with was uh with a buddy of mine named matt from bha he had a yellow lab at the time that was a solid uh pheasant dog but she was real old and most of the time we were walking just on our own um because the dog just couldn't do a whole lot could go out a couple times and she was just done for a few days and actually I didn't realize until like a couple months later, but that was her last hunt was her hunt with the two of us. And he had to put her down a couple weeks later. So, mm-hmm. um, but anyway, we were out in, uh, just West of the twin cities. It was one of those days. It's like floating between 28 and 34 throughout the day. So it was stuff was slushy, but there was also a lot of freezing happening and I'd never bird hunted before. I borrowed Donnie's, um, 
Benelli, so I didn't have to carry my brick heavy uh, 12 gauge pump out and stuff. So I had a nice gun, was out wandering around and made the mistake of wearing seven inch hikers instead of like taller boots to walk through all these sloughs and watery slush and um, just really enjoyed walking around, enjoyed watching the dog work. Um, but my feet were absolutely soaked because water kept coming in the top of my boots and between spots, I'd take my boots off in my buddy's truck, wring my socks out the window and lay them on the defrost. Um, and then throw them back on at the next spot <laughs> with frozen feet and, and stumble through. And, um, it was a really stupid idea because by the end of the day, I was in a little bit of trouble and I was on the verge of maybe going to the hospital <laughs> because really? my feet were so cold. I couldn't feel anything, but my heels striking the ground. And for like three days, my feet burned as they were just kind of healing from getting a little too cold. But, uh, but yeah, so after all that, we flushed, I think it was either one or two hens. You can't shoot hens unless you're on a game farm or something. But yeah, so we flushed maybe two hens, and I just really enjoyed it. I'm like, man, this is, I've come to really enjoy the more active style of hunting after spending, a, you know, the majority of my life sitting in a tree stand waiting. Um, so uh, I, I I did that and was like, man, this is, this is a lot of fun. Um, that summer, I moved to Hudson, Wisconsin, where I am now. Uh, which is still kind of part of the Twin Cities metro. It's, I mean, it's basically Minnesota. It's right on the other side of the St. Croix River. Um, and uh, met at the time I was, um, that fall of 2016, uh, I was then employed by Sigmanta, which is Donnie's, Vincent's production company, as well as Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Um, and my buddy Tim Brass, that's the state policy director at BHA, grew up in this area, even though he lives in Colorado now. And, uh, one of his childhood friends, um, Brian Nagorka lives up the road and not too far from here. And he has a wire haired pointy Griffin. And I was telling Tim how I wanted to, uh, try upland hunting more and it's something I really wanted to try at. And he introduced me to Brian from afar by email and me and Brian got together and we've been, you know, best buddies ever since, you know, we're kind of each other's go-to for upland hunts and, um, I shot my first pheasant with him at a, uh, waterfowl production area, probably 10 miles from my house. And that was, so yeah, 2016 or, or so. And, um, yeah, just fell in love with watching him and his dog work. Um, his Griffin is young and, and very able. And it's just one of those things where I was like, man, that's, this is so much fun. So I guess, yeah, that was 2017. So 2016 was the first hunt. 2017 was the first year. I spent considerable amount of time afield looking for birds and um, just, I, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. I was just walking around with Brian and his dog and when birds popped up, I shot them. You know, it, <laughs> I, I don't pretend to be an expert by any stretch and just really enjoyed seeing the like insane amount of land we have access to. Really enjoyed the prairie because I didn't grow up near anything that resembled prairie. Um, even though they're non-natives, pheasants are just cool animals. They're absolutely beautiful. Um, we do do also get after some rough grouse but they're they're really tough and we also get after woodcock so at the end of my they're 20s, tough to hit oh yeah they're tiny <laughs> um yeah i mean it's it's a lot of work for not a lot of gain other than feeling accomplished in a, a couple of woodcock nuggets at the end of the day right um, but uh yeah I, I i shot a woodcock that year so this is 2017 shot one woodcock and one really nice pheasant uh rooster um and I don't know, me and Brian probably walked 50 miles or more trying to get those, just looking for grouse and everything else. And, um, but got to know my area really well, got to know a lot of amazing public land and 
like I said, I, I really, really enjoyed watching his Griffin Rudy work. And it, it was like, you know, and also, as, as Nick kind of spoke to earlier, I, I don't have a ton of time to sit and stand for 14 hours a day or um, a lot of the better deer hunting is a considerable drive away. So you're looking at an hour plus in the car. Um, and if you can only hunt half a day, you're spending two and a half hours in the car to hunt for three hours, you know, and if you kill right. something, it's it's almost a, a burden rather than a success because it's like, holy crap, how am I actually going to get this done and get back where I need to be to watch a kid or get to work or, or whatever. So bird hunting i could hop in the car and be at a wpa or something and you know 10 minutes walk for an hour and be home and it was i still got hunting in i still felt accomplished and uh it it, it just fit my my lifestyle at the time better um but yeah it, it just it just struck me as something so fun and different and new that i kind of got obsessed with it and then i uh I threw my name on a waiting list at a local breeder, a wire-haired pointy griffin breeder. Um, and uh, actually this fall, this September, he shot me a text and he said, hey, I want to talk to you about a dog named Deuce. And that's his stud. Um, so I was like, oh, cool. He must have studded him out because I knew the litter he was trying to have with one of his females didn't work out. Um, so I thought maybe he studded him out and he was going to get you know a few out of that litter or something. He was going to let me in on that. Um, ended up being that he wasn't going to be breeding anymore and he wanted his you know he has five had five griffins and his lifestyle changed a little bit started a production company and things and just wasn't hunting enough to justify or keep five dogs in the hunt so to speak and uh he wanted to rehome his um his stud dog deuce and he wanted to just straight up give him to me and um i was kind of in shock because when he you know, when we talked about it initially, I thought he wanted me to buy him, which is not uncommon by any stretch. Um, a breeder gets out of it. They've got a, a well, like an amazing dog. You usually spend actually a premium for a started dog or a dog that's two or three years old and has been trained. Um, and we were talking like two, three grand. And I was like, I don't, I don't, I don't have that kind of stuff. I could maybe afford a puppy in the spring <laughs> at half right. that price or less. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, he offered him to me just for free, just because he wanted him to go to a good local home where he knew somebody was going to get him hunting a lot. And, uh, yeah, so, um, kind of the catch was that Deuce had been trained pretty well for the first 18 months or so, but that's also about when the breeder's life changed a little bit and he didn't hunt him as much. So he has a good base, but he's just not super well trained. So I got him September 28th, I believe it was. And, Season opens on mid-October, so I had about three weeks to try to work with him and, and get him on board. And he, The good news is um, he's got way better instincts than I'll ever be as a trainer. <laughs> so um, that's the good news. Um, so he's got some work to do to get kind of sharpened up a little bit, but um, we've had a blast. I mean, he's just a great companion. They're great dogs. And uh, you'll, you'll, if you look at any of my social media, I'll, I'll post about him and call him Zeus like after the Greek god Zeus, um, because it was kind of odd. Me and the kids, we had been talking about getting a puppy, and we thought we were going to get one from his fall-slash-winter litter, and that obviously didn't work out. Um, And uh, we had picked out the name Zeus for a male puppy, just for whatever reason. And and, uh, when we got the dog, his name was Deuce, and they were so similar, it was like, well, you know, the kids were like, it's it's basically the same. Can we just change his name to Zeus? So to kind of get the kids on board and have them feel a little level of ownership we changed his name to zeus and 
he didn't miss a beat. I mean, it took a day for him to catch on to the mild difference between hearing Deuce and Zeus shouted at him, and he knew that, knew to come over there and, and do whatever was said. So, um, but but yeah, and there were also some additional little challenges in there. He'd um, because he he lived at a breeder. He'd spent his whole life living in a four by six kennel in his you know heated and cooled garage, and not to say that he wasn't well taken care of. It's just much different than living in a house with two small dogs and three kids and hardwood floors. Um, so the first week was real interesting cause he did not like walking on things that were smooth. <laughs> he still has trouble with thresholds, like leaving one hardwood floored room onto like tile. He takes some encouragement because he'll just start spinning his tires and run into the wall or something stupid. And, um, so there, there's been challenges just adjusting to family life, but you get him in an open field and he's, uh, He's pretty, uh, pretty amazing to watch and, and hang out behind. And like I said, he's got some, he's got some work to do on, um, holding better. He'll get on point, but he doesn't always want to wait for me, uh, to get over there before he tries to flush. So we're working on that a little this off season and, um, making sure he's on it, you know, like he'll, he'll get close, but he's not certain what he should be doing. Um, his instincts are enough to get him there and get him to point, but he's always not always kind of close enough or, um, it's not always a really solid point. It's kind of a slow point. He doesn't lock up like you kind of want him to. So that stuff we'll be working on this off season and heading into next. So, but that's kind of the, the quick and dirty on how I got into it and how I ended up with a, an amazing four-year-old griffin uh when i'd only started <laughs> bird hunting a couple years ago so as far as continuing the training is that is that something you've done before have you got somebody that's helping you with that or or how are you going about how are you, how are you going about the continuing his training so the breeder has um given me a lot of basic information and it's really not it's really not hard from what I'm seeing and seeing the results in him. And actually my buddy, Brian, that I mentioned just got a Griffin puppy. So he's got a four year old now and the puppy, um, and kind of going through that training with him a little bit and seeing what he's doing. And we're going to try to put the two of them together some, uh, when it gets above negative 20 degrees outside and kind of do some of the same exercises with him as we do with the puppy. But it's really not a lot of difficult training. It's just a lot of repetition and really, working with the dog to, to get them to listen to you and gain and trust each other really. Um, and for him to know that when I say he needs to do something, he needs to do it or else. Um, because there's a lot of danger in having a dog run free on Prairie too. I mean, one of the places this year, um, and, uh, it's, it's right by, I mean, it's not highways. It's not like a four lane highway or anything, but it's country roads with a 55 mile an hour speed limit. So you've got, anything from trucks hauling grain to people in sports cars to just, you know, mom getting the kids to practice or, or whatever, flying down roads doing 60, 65 miles an hour. And if he doesn't listen to me and stop, that's dangerous, you know, because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. he could flush a bird and want to chase it. And if it flies across the highway, that's, you know, that's bad news for him. So um, there's a lot of safety concern in it more so than just getting him to point a bird so I can shoot it. So, um, but yeah, I mean, the training's not a ton of difficult stuff. It's just a lot of repetition. Um, there's a book called gun dog. It's an old book, probably, I think it was written in like the sixties. I've got it over here behind me somewhere. I can't remember the author's name, but it's a super old book. It's just kind of, 
he he based it on a lot of scientific backing, but it's basically how to train a gun dog without taking them to a game farm or a prairie every day to do it. Just stuff you can do in your backyard. Um, tying a pheasant wing to a fly rod, and that's how you start getting them to point. You know, they can smell it, they can get up to it, but if they try to flush it, you know, if they try to grab it, you yank it away from them, and you toss it somewhere else. And then they go, they sneak up to it and point, and you keep doing that so that they never actually... You know, they're not getting the bird so much as they're um, learning to point and flush a little bit. Um, so it's just simple exercises like that that really tune it in. Um, and then, you know, one of the other basic commands that is I'm finding to be somewhat difficult to get the dog to get a hold of. And like I said, it's not that uh, Zeus doesn't have training. He's just super rusty on some of it. So it's like he'll do it, but only kind of uh, and not quite how you want him to. <laughs> um so one of the main commands is just whoa, and that's just to make them stop. You know, whether it's on point to keep them from flushing until you're ready, or whether it's you know in the house to keep them from tackling your daughter trying to go down the stairs at the same time as him. <laughs> um, but there's various methods for that, and that's that's what that's his big uh, my big project for him because I know he can find birds. I killed a, a pheasant over him this year, and it was it was actually kind of like storybook, but um, the woe command is, is pretty central to, to what you want them to do. Um, and, uh, one way to do that is you use what's called a woe board. It's probably like a two foot by three foot piece of plywood or, or something like it. You put them on it and you say, woe. and if they step off of it, you beep them or shock them or reprimand them or just put them back. However suits your fancy, how you want to do it. Some people don't believe in shocking. Some people don't believe in beeping. Some people believe in shocking the living crap out of them until they listen. And I think some of it really has to do with um, the dog's personality as well, whereas some dogs are just not going to respond unless there's a physical stimulus involved. Um, so that's that's one of the things we're working on with him is, is the woe command. We work on it in the house. We work on it when I'm out, you know, hiking with him. Um, and that way it's just so commonplace that if I say it in a hunting scenario, it's not odd or new or only three months out of the year he hears it. It's, it's, it's all the time. Um, so, um, and then, uh, yeah, a lot of it's instinct. Like I said earlier, his, um, his instinct is, is the big thing. It's just making sure we can use that instinct safely and efficiently so that one, he doesn't get hit by a car in the process and two, he doesn't run off. And three, when he does point, I actually get a, a shot at the bird before he flushes it. So, and I was going to ask you, and it sounded like you 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 hinted on it there a little bit. But with him being a an older, uh, mature dog, was there a was there a huge um, issue with him transitioning to a new owner, or did it just come natural? Well, it, it seemed like it was going great, but the longer I, you know, the more I get to know him and the more time I spend with him, I can see him being much better now than he was then. So I thought he was doing great then, but he's really doing great now. Um, because really a bird dog, when you're not just keeping it as a, a bird dog that stays like in an outdoor kennel or something like that, that stays indoors with the family, um, it's almost like the hunting part's just a bonus, you know, um, because you know, the nine, you know, the eight, nine months a year that you're not hunting, he's in the house with you. Um, so that's been our big concern is just making sure he adjusted well to the other dogs and the kids and our lifestyle of, you know, uh, my wife's a full-time student. Uh, she went back to school. She'll graduate this May, which then she'll be working full-time. Um, I work full-time. 
in downtown Minneapolis, so I have a long commute, and that means he's in a crate for six to eight hours a day sometimes. Um, and that's been an adjustment for him, but you know, not one that makes him too crazy. It's just, um, it's just different. You know, we don't have him crammed in there for 15 hours a day or anything that would be considered almost neglectful or anything. Um, but it's just been an adjustment for him and he's, he's had his ups and downs. And of course he's kind of a, you know, and a lot of dogs like that breed or a lot of hunting dogs really, uh, work best off consistency and of course I get him in September and we're super consistent up until Thanksgiving and then I'm off for a week here and there and my wife's out of class for winter break and my kids are in the house a ton and then here comes Christmas and you know I'm off for two weeks straight and then so you know we've had the challenges of getting him crate trained just because it's it's our fault we haven't been super consistent um but um, he, he's doing just fine. And, um, as far as hunting goes, like I said, his instinct is fine. It's just kind of fine tuning him to make sure that when he gets on point, he stays there. Um, and you know, Griffins are really good. Um, and this is why I, I kind of fell in love with the breed. I've hunted behind, a uh, a German short haired and, uh, an amazing dog, probably a better hunter, <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I've hunted behind a couple of different breeds and I just fell in love with the way the, um, the wirehead pointed Griffin, just their mannerisms, their personality, how they go about hunting. And they, you know, I've heard them called the old man's hunting dog cause they just don't range out very far, which is great for bird hunting because, um, you don't want them too far because the bird, especially around here where you're hunting wild birds that are not a very dense population and the weather can be mild during the season. So they're not going to hold um, they'll start running. Um, if he gets on point, I've got to get there quick. And if he's 120 yards ahead of me or something nuts, it's just not going to happen. He, he generally stays 30 to 50 yards circle of me, um, and does a good job of working back and forth. And that's another area we've worked on too. And he's started to pick up pretty good as part of it is you, you want to be able to direct the dog. So he knows his nose, but he can't see what you can see either. So his, he's following his nose, but you know, he's, he's blinded by the prairie. He can't see where a slough is. He can't see what looks like good habitat because he can't see more than his own nose because the prairie grass is so tall in front of him. So he'll look back at you and you, you know, you start out by just kind of you yourself as the hunter and you know, the guy leading the dog, you zigzag a ton and every time you zig or zag, you, you throw your hand up and lean that way to point which direction you're going. And then eventually they start to get the idea that, oh, he's going over there, so I should. Um, but now that once they get training or get used to that, you don't really have to go over there. You just lean and point like you're going to, and they just run right over there and look around in there um, and then kind of range back. So, you know, it saves you a lot of walking when you can just kind of point and lean and the dog just goes and does his thing and they don't find a bird they come right back out and you can point the other direction or just keep moving forward man you're gonna hearing all that well i think you're gonna have to change your logo again and your name <laughs> and I, you're gonna have to call it committed to hunt because i don't right because you start, you gotta go hunting you got this dog and you, it's gonna get it's gonna get worse and you're gonna get worse if you don't go hunting and you're gonna well just... that's one of the things that's been nice about him man like even just he's got entirely too much energy and uh if he doesn't get out and do stuff, he's a nut job in the house because you got a 60 pound 
furry wrecking ball that just comes barreling through the house, moving furniture and, you know, he just gets excited and wants to let out some energy. And, um, my wife a, would my wife would say I resemble that comment. By the way, right, right. <laughs> sixty pounds. Come on, man. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I've seen. Oh, yeah, I've, I've I've believe seen, me, I've, let, I've <laughs> more like more like two hundred pound wrecking ball. But I, I've seen Steve barrel down the stairs like your dog barrels down the stairs. I'm sure of it. <laughs> yes, he has. <laughs> but uh, but he's been good for me. Just as like I said, as a companion, as as motivation to get out and hunt, to get out and be active. I'm fortunate to have like a little tiny park right in my neighborhood, two doors down from my house where I can take him um, just to get him out and run him a little bit. But I also live near a a really large uh, state park that has some great hiking trails and he loves going out there. And um, I mean, before the temperature got real cold here recently, I guess before the first of the year, I was hiking even at night because, you know, it gets dark at 530 anymore. um, Just taking him out there at night when nobody's on the trails the trails are open to the public till 11 30 at night so him and i just go out in the dark and you know go anywhere from two three up to five miles three four days a week just to get him some exercise and it gets me some exercise um you know like and and i'm sure people can relate and some people might say i'm crazy and obviously i really love the outdoors and hunting because i've spent a significant portion of my life writing about it doing it you know, advocating for it, whatever. But some days like you want to go, but you just don't feel like it, (laughs) you know, like it's, it's cold. It's, it's super windy or, um, there's just, you know, too much on your mind where you're just not going to enjoy it or, 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 you know, any number of reasons where you, you just really want to go. You just can't get yourself to do it. Um, and a lot of it has to do with just being lazy and stressed out about something. But when you're sitting in the house, kind of hemming and hawing over whether you actually want to go and do it. And there's this dog that's so excited right there waiting to just go. I mean, me and him went out probably at least two to three days, most every week of pheasant season. We only killed one bird and we only flushed a handful here and there and a bunch of hens. But, you know, it got me out 10 times more than if I was just alone or bumming off Brian, getting him and his dog to meet me somewhere. Um, so he's been a, a huge encouragement just to stay active, both hunting and otherwise. Um, so, it, I mean, like I said, they're great companions and it's, you know, it's just nice to have that encouragement to, to get out and do stuff and be active, whether it's a walk around the neighborhood or hiking a few miles at the state park that's four miles away or, uh, you know, hitting some of the prairie just for a quick walk with the gun and see what we see. Well, it sounds like you caught lightning in a bottle with uh, with Zeus and it got you in the woods doing your own thing and more often than yeah. you ever planned on doing, which is super cool. Cause I got to imagine like, a, like I've never, I've never thought of getting into this just because it, it, it just seems like there's a big barrier for entry just because yeah. you, I mean, you could do like you were doing and you know, it always sucks to be that guy, whether it's a, somebody's got a boat and you don't or <laughs> land and you don't or spots and you don't. And then you're always like, hey, I want to go hunting or fishing. Right. You, you kind of need to go too or I can't. <laughs> you know? Right, yeah. So you're bugging somebody. But, I mean, if you're thinking about, like, okay, I want to upland bird hunt, and but then I got to get a dog. Then I got to train a dog. Like, what do you think? What do you do you think do you think the dog is the biggest barrier of entry to get in like the actual I'm going to purchase this animal and train it to do 
what I want it to do. Also, I'm going to have to worry about this animal all the time because not only is this, you know, my companion, but it's also a trained hunting dog that I paid over a thousand dollars for. Right. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. You can pheasant hunt well without a dog. You can, you can do a lot of bird hunting without a dog. It's just, in my opinion, it's not nearly as much fun. (laughs) And I, I guess that, that goes with anything, but, um, especially where I'm at in Western Wisconsin, it's, um, you know, you can't really, I mean, you can pheasant hunt without a dog, but there's just not enough pheasants around that you can do it very successfully. So, Mm -hmm. uh, having a dog is almost a requirement. Whereas, you know, South Dakota or Iowa and Nebraska, where the numbers are way higher, even Western Minnesota, when it gets super cold and there's a lot of snow on the ground, the birds are holding tight you and a couple buddies can watch, walk some ditches and get a limit, you know? So, um, I wouldn't necessarily say that you must have a dog to upland hunt. It, it really depends on where you are. Um, mm-hmm. and I, like I said, just, I've not had the, uh, fortune of being where that's even a possibility. I, I've, I've gone a ton of times around here without a dog and I've never seen a pheasant, <laughs> but that's, you know, 60 80 percent of the time i do go out with a dog i don't see any pheasants either so um at least around here so um it's not to say that one's super successful but i know for a fact i'm covering i mean i've not tracked it i don't have a gps collar for zeus or anything but i mean for every mile i walk he probably does four to five miles of running um so there's no way i'd cover anywhere near that ground on my own Um, nor would I be able to pinpoint a bird unless I about stepped on it because certain times a year they'll, they'll do, you know, I mean, they're going to do one of two things. They're going to run like hell or they're going to sit tight until the dog basically kicks them out of there. Um, so if they're holding tight and you're walking and you just walk three feet, the other side of one, they, they're not going to move. Um, and if they're running, you don't even know they're there half the time because you're zigzagging like hell and, you don't see anything because you also don't have a dog that's letting you know. And, and we, I, I don't know if it's, I've not hunted with enough upland guys to know if it's a super common term, but you can see when your dog gets birdie, like they go from just kind of frolicking and sniffing to nose down a really intense tail wag, not just excited to be outside tail wag. It's more of a rapid short movement. Um, so then you at least know a bird's in the area. You know, you're, you're on to something or a bird has been in that area recently. So you can at least, and you know, all the time, I don't, like I said, I've not done enough of upland hunting to know how other guys do this. Um, but when I see that I'm making like mental notes of the area, the terrain and the property. So I, I know where Zeus got birdie a lot this year. And then I'd go back to those spots and that's where I'd end up finding a rooster or, or flushing a hen. Um, and it's because, you know, I would have never had a clue if there would have ever been a bird there or not if I was just there by myself kicking around hoping for the best. Um, but with him there, I'd see areas that seemed like concentrated bird scent, like birds were there often enough that it was getting him excited. Um, and, and, you know, I don't, I don't know all the science behind it, but I'd imagine um, around here with the weather we've had, a scent sticks around for a while if a bird's been there. So I'd imagine the bird had been there within the last eight to 12 hours, maybe a little longer. Um, so that to me means birds are in that area and you know, you're strategic about it. You, 
you know, look for cornfields and in certain habitat and things like that um, as well. But, um, you know, with not plentiful bird numbers, there could be the best habitat in zero birds just because of the nature of the fact that there's just not a lot of them out there. So, Well, some people just like running their dogs too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You hear that a lot. People just like to get their dog out there. In fact, I... It's the same with, you know, beagle hunting rabbits. You know, yeah. I don't I don't know anybody that has, like, upland dogs around here, but I know people that have beagles, and I've hunted with people that have had beagles, and it's some of the funnest hunting I've ever done. And, yeah, you can rabbit hunt without a beagle in Michigan, but if you, good luck. I mean, it's right. <laughs> unless you've got a guy that's willing to just beat brush in a gray area, you know, you're, you're just not going to do very well with it, where, you know, a beagle will freeze a rabbit or chase a rabbit, and, you know, you wait for it to come back around, but... Any time I've ever hunted with anybody and we were hunting with dogs, you know, the person with the beagle wasn't shooting at all. They were just having having a blast watching the dog do Mm -hmm. what he trained it to do. And, you know, that's it's such a big part of it. I can I can tell you absolutely that I would be terrible at this. <laughs> Steve would probably be pretty good at it. So, and I'm I'm sitting here listening to all this, and I was drifting back. So I haven't done I haven't done any any bird hunting in a long time. But I will tell you a, a, a quick story. Um, I don't think I've ever shared with even you, Nick. But when I was growing up, so I grew up on a on a tobacco farm. And one of the farms that, that we leased to raise tobacco on, there was an elderly gentleman whose name, I don't even know what his real name was. Everybody called him Bink, B-I-N-K. <laughs> his last name I was Mosley. I grew Mos- up in the South. I know all about tobacco yeah, farms it, and guys it, with odd names. Yeah, Binks Mosley was his name. Anyway, he had a couple of German short-haired pointers, and he was he was too old. I don't recall ever seeing him get getting out and hunting with those dogs, but he would always tell me, you know, if you ever want to get out, and they would love to go with you. And every now and then, I would I'd take the shotgun, go in and talk to him for a little bit. And I, I still remember the older dog's name was Bo, and I can't remember the, the 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 other dog's name, but he would tell them to go with me, and and you know they would they would take off with me. But now he would also tell me, he said he said Bo Bo was the older dog. He said he's only going to let you miss a couple of times, and he's going to quit. And sure enough, <laughs> if you missed a, you missed one bird, and he would look at you kind of funny. You miss again, and he didn't have anything to. Uh, he he'd go to the house, yeah. And, yeah. and then you know, about thirty minutes later, you'd hear I'd hear Bink's truck rumbling up, and he'd come and say, "He said, how many did you miss?" <laughs> and, he'd, and he'd have he'd have Bo with him, but. Yeah, just That's sitting here funny. listening to you talk about all that, and I, I remember you know a lot of cold mornings getting out you know with those dogs, and and this was quail hunting, so that's yep. that's all we really had was mm-hmm. uh, quail, and we didn't have a huge population of quail, but you know you you'd usually get into one or two coveys each time you went out, so um, and it was as much fun walking watching the dogs work as anything yeah. else. So now, yep. Will, are you looking to, are you looking to stud Zeus out then? Is that something you're going to do in the future? Nope, nope. He's uh, he's fixed, so he's just a his, an old house dog his, that his, I take pheasant hunting now. His, his studding days are done. <laughs> they are. Yep. Well, that's cool though that you just uh, that you that you happened into this, and it just sounds like you're yep. way. It sounds just like you're way into it now. I mean, is this is this kind of like this is probably? I mean, what what are your plans in the future for uh, for Will to hunt and for uh, getting back into some of the other outdoor stuff you used to do, or is it going to be a lot of a lot of uh, bird hunting in your future? 
Well, it's going to be, uh, it, you know, like I've kind of alluded to, I've moved around a, a bit and um, switched jobs a couple times, but I'm pretty settled into the job I'm in now. And with my wife graduating uh, with her degree in May, that'll go to actually having a, a house with two incomes instead of one income and one outcome. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, that will also free up my time a little bit just because... Um, it doesn't bode well to travel and hunt when you've got a wife and three kids and she's got a evening job and homework and papers and a thesis and, and all that stuff. So I've scaled back my hunting time significantly. And that's what I mean about being able to bird hunt a half a day or a few hours here and there, or even go out in the morning for a couple hours, come home, go back out for a couple hours and it not being a big stress on the family. Um, and my kids are getting older now too. So it's not as they're a lot more self-sufficient than they used to be. And, um, my goals for this fall are to increase my bow hunting significantly because that's, I still love bow hunting. Um, but like I said, having moved West and spent all my early life sitting in a tree freezing, um, seeing nothing, at least here I start to see way more deer, but, um, my goal for the fall is to, uh, to get out and bow hunt. Uh, I'd love to go for elk or mule deer I'm starting to kind of lean toward a one week kind of adventure hunt over trying to hit a whitetail stand weekly for months at a time. So I, I may, I may end up going West. I've, I've got some loose plans to chase elk and I've always got the opportunity to mule deer hunt since I've done that a couple times in South Dakota and at least have a clue where to go. But short of that, I'll, I drew a first season, um, turkey tag for the spring here. So, uh, mid April I'll be after turkeys and, uh, on public land here, I've got a couple that I really like for turkeys. I shot a nice tom last year in first season. Um, so I plan to go back there, and that's just with a shotgun because it's a lot of run and gun, and I'm not good enough or brave enough to try to run and gun with a bow with no blind. I'm just, I know my limits, and I, I like to eat, so <laughs> I'm just going <laughs> to, I'm just going to take my gun again for that. Um, it's, and, and for whatever reason, I mean, I, I, I was fortunate. My first two turkeys were a week apart with a bow with Donnie Vincent out at his lease here in Wisconsin uh, out of a blind with him calling and stuff. So it's like that was a blast. Um, but I, I this past spring, I killed a bird on my own, calling him in myself with my shotgun on public land that I'd spent a lot of time getting to know. And um, as much as I absolutely love hunting with Donnie and and those experiences were absolutely amazing. Um, kind of doing it all on your own. And actually the, the gun I shot the bird with, and there's a, a whole write up on this on my website too. Um, the gun I shot the bird with was my uncle's gun that he give, gave me and he's passed away now. Um, um, and two of my uncles, I have one uncle's shotgun, my uncle Richard, my uncle Stuart, I have his muzzle loader. Both were big influences in in getting me into hunting, and of course my dad was. But you know everybody's dad is. But you always need some reinforcement that it's cool and something you should do by the cool uncles, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so it was really special to do all of that and uh, kind of feel good about myself and to do it with a gun that that really means something to me. Um, so I'll be back out turkey hunting this spring. But yeah, next fall I really hope to increase my my bow hunting quite a bit. Um, like I said, I'd love to do a one-week or 10-day kind of backpack hunt somewhere, whether it's South Dakota or Colorado, and then still 
still try to get a white tail if I can, but we'll see. So, Will, one one question that I was kind of thinking Nick might throw out there, but he hadn't gotten around to yet. So, as far as you know, we've we've talked a lot about the talk, talked a lot about the dog, but you know, if somebody that that is interested in in getting into um, upland bird hunting, you know, obviously you need a you need a you need a gun. So, what are what are you using? Yeah. So the gear side. Um, like I said, that first hunt was kind of a baptism by fire about lost some toes. Um, right. My legs were scratched to hell because I did not wear the right pants. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, aside from that, though, um, as far as gear, the, the most important stuff is tall enough boots that are waterproof and warm, briar pants, and then the gun is kind of secondary because you only use that if you get lucky. The rest of the time, you're going to use <laughs> the pants and the boots. You pants know. and boots. <laughs> Um, so first things first, <laughs> don't lose your toes and don't leave with scarred thighs from pushing through briars all day and it ripping right into your skin. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so as far as gear goes, good tall boots, uh, pants that can withstand some briars and for a gun, um, you can use any shotgun. What I've been using and I really, uh, I really like is a Stevens five, 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 20 gauge over and under. Um, MSRP on them is around like six ninety nine probably, but you can find them all day under five hundred bucks, either retail or used. Um, it's it's you know you can look you can spend twelve grand on an over and under from some fancy Italian gun shop, but uh, the Stevens is a, a Savage brand, um, so it's made it's owned by Savage Arms. Um, it's a great gun. Shoulder's super easy. It's immensely light because um, around here it means walking all day for a few days before you even see a bird half the time. So having a light gun that's easy to shoulder and easy to carry is is real nice because you're not wearing yourself out just lugging a gun around. Um, but yeah, it, it's been real nice. I mean, I've only been lucky enough to fire it probably, let's see, my first pheasant I shot once it dropped. I shot twice for Woodcock, uh, shot once, missed it, shot again, hit it, and then the pheasant I shot this year was one shot and down, um, you know, so I, I can't say that I'm the best shot, so the the gun must be doing something right, too. I was, was going to um, say, that's a pretty good batting average, though. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's, I mean, um, and I'm terrible at, like, trapping skeet, too, so it's not me the whole time. <laughs> I, I, I react, but, so the problem with skeet and trap with me is I get way into my head, and my first few clays, I'm I'm on, and then after that, I'm I'm just all in my head and screwing stuff up. So I guess the bird surprising me is probably the best thing for me. Um, so maybe fighting, fighting more birds is probably not what you want to do. You only want to find oh, God, one or yeah. two. <laughs> <laughs> I'd just be throwing steel to the wind and giving federal all my money. Oh, man. But, so uh, do you do you see anybody, cause, and, and I get the weight thing. Um, you know, back when I was doing this, it was, and I haven't, I honestly have not hunted with a gun in a long time. But, you know, back in those days, it was, the you know i had a remington 1100 and it was a multi-purpose you know it was squirrels and and rabbits yeah. and and birds and dove and everything and you just you know you had one shotgun but do you do most people today go with the the over under side by sides or do some um, people still use the the pumps and the auto loaders yeah most i i'd say it's it's whatever you got um like my buddy brian hunts with his same 12 gauge he duck hunts with and you know, he's been doing this way longer than I have. Um, 
yeah, I mean, it, I think it's it just it's whatever you got. Um, I just got a really good deal in the Stevens, and I knew I wanted to get into Upland, and I knew after lugging my 12 gauge around that it just wasn't a whole lot of fun uh, lugging it around. So it, it all kind of lined up. But if I didn't have the opportunity to get a really good price on that Stevens, I'd be lugging that same gun I shot the turkey with that Winchester 1400 pump, 12 gauge, switch the choke out and call it an upland gun um so that's by no means a barrier to entry if you've you can go to walmart and get a remington 870 and and upland hunt successfully with that you know for a few hundred bucks um so it's definitely not uh not a a limitation and and if you want to get into it really you can get a pair of the relatively cheap wrangler briar jeans at fleet farm for 50 bucks um, and they're great. I, I've been wearing an Orvis pair that I got as a review item from Orvis. You know, they're like 150 or 200 bucks, which is, is a lot of money, but they're 10 times more comfortable, but they do the same job. So you can get a $50 pair of briar pants from Wrangler at Fleet Farm. And like I said, you can wear rubber boots, but um, a lot of the grasses can kind of grab rubber. So you can really get hung up in grasses. So um, I like the Irish Setter wing shooter boots. Um, they're all leather and it doesn't grab as much in the grass. I mean, you're going to get tripped up and fall down no matter what. It's just how often is it going to happen? Um, and I like those boots or ones like them, just a really tall leather boot. Um, and yeah, those are the, the two most important things. And you don't even have to spend a fortune on those. You could be, if you own a shotgun, you can pheasant hunt for a couple hundred bucks, you know, and if you want to hunt behind a dog, just join your local pheasants forever chapter. And kind of like you talked about, Nick, most of the guys that have a dog, they're just excited to get out and share the, the activity with somebody and get their dog on some birds. Um, and I've actually taken, I took my dad out on his first pheasant hunt. He came out from Virginia just because he was so excited about the idea of me having a dog um, and of course, visiting the grandkids is never a bad deal, but him and my mom came out so we could go hunting a little bit. He got to go on his first couple pheasant hunts, uh, with me. Um, a buddy of mine that I, you know, I met somehow, some way through writing and stuff. Um, he loves pheasant hunting, but doesn't have a dog and wanted to go with somebody with a dog. So he's come out with me. Um, you know, so, and it's been, you know, it's, it's. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't take a lot for somebody to convince me to bring my dog out hunting. Um, I didn't buy a Minnesota bird tag, you know, bird license this year, but I've off I offered to like half a dozen people. I'm like, if you want to go, I'll just run the dog. You shoot. I don't I don't have to hunt. I don't. That's not really. I just need to get him on birds um, and keep him fresh. So if you want to go, I'll drive and I'll bring the dog to you, and I don't even have to hunt. You know, because I didn't want to spend the two hundred dollars on a license if it was an afternoon hunt with a buddy. You know. So, um, I offered quite a few times to just bring my dog and let him work as, you know, something to help look for birds for him. So, uh, if you can find somebody with a dog, it's, it's usually pretty easy to convince them to come hunting with you or, or for you to go with them or, or, or whatever. And I mean, guys are simple too, you know, like if you come and bring them a box of shells and just say, Hey, this is for taking me out, you'll be like their best friend they're like oh crap you actually are appreciative of this you know they probably taken two dozen people out that only ever went once and barely said a thank you so just a thank you and a six-pack or a, <laughs> a box of shells i mean 
it's really not hard and, and it goes a long way to making friends and, and good people that when you end up getting a dog that'll help you train it and, and stuff like that and you know but yeah I mean it, it's usually really not hard to get into and find people and you know and especially most anywhere there's pheasants there's insane amounts of public land so it's not something where you have to pay trespass fees or lease a bunch of land or join a club I mean I've got I'm lucky in the number of properties that are right around me. It's not very bird dense, but I mean, there's dozens of waterfowl production areas and wildlife management areas all within an hour of me. And, uh, yeah, they're all immense and beautiful and a lot of fun to walk in. I can shoot grouse, woodcock, pheasant all throughout this area. Um, not super successfully, but I have the chance and it's, but you're out there. Right, yeah, and mm-hmm. it's not because I have a fortune. It's because I was gifted a dog. I've got a few pieces of equipment and some time to kill. So, yeah, and you've mentioned it twice now tonight, Will. You're originally from Virginia. I have to ask, what what area of Virginia? I was right out of, outside of Richmond, so Central Virginia. Okay, uh, and I, the reason I ask, I grew up just just south of the Virginia line in North Carolina. So, oh yeah. Um, I didn't move to I didn't move to Atlanta until '98, so spent most of my life not too far below where you where you grew up, I guess. So yeah, and I've got family down on Kerr Lake and stuff like that, right around Raleigh and oh, Manson. Yeah. Yep. Oh, exactly where it's at. Well, Nick, is that about uh, that about wrap it up for you, bud? I think that's more than enough information for anybody that'd like to even consider getting into this. And thank you very much, Will, for sharing it with us. Well, and yeah. um. One thing I'll say, too, um, is uh, if I didn't mention it already, uh, just joining or getting involved with Pheasants Forever is a great way to get into the upland community. And uh, our our backcountry hunters and anglers, a lot of those folks are upland hunters, too, and they're usually great folks. Um, And if you have any questions or want to tell me that I I said something wrong about dog training or something (laughs) like that, um, you can can get in touch with me through my website. my you can there's a contact form there or you know all social media platforms it's just at the will to hunt too so feel free to you know stop by and heckle me some there and tell me how wrong i am about bird hunting too (laughs) and i will be sure to leave a, a link in the show notes to your website and i'll go ahead and throw one out there for uh bha um both i'm a life member i know nick's a member as well so i'll throw that in the show notes as well and one for pheasants forever so we'll get all those in the show notes so if anybody wants to uh, check those out just look at the show notes on the website um well thank you so much man it was great talking to you again we we need to do this more often because i i like i was saying before we started the show i hadn't talked to you since you were doing the the little program that you had where you were uh collecting safety harnesses for hunters yeah. with you know the issues of hunters falling out of stands that was been been quite a while so uh we'll have to do it again but i really do appreciate you taking the time to join us yeah absolutely thanks for uh for having me on and thank you to all of our listeners we we truly do appreciate your support um please do take time to uh visit the will to hunt check out all that will has to offer on his website and until next week get out there and enjoy some time in the outdoors so long everyone